You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. And hey, it's Chelsea. And today we are going to have a two-part case. And I'm doing both of them this time. Sometimes we layer them and it's one host and then another host, but I'm doing both of them today. And both of these cases are part of a cold case unit for Allentown Police. They started this, I guess, unit in 2015 and on it to date has 20 cases that they are looking for information on. So I have two from that group and they're both very different. So I'm going to start off with um, the first person and, and that's Rocco Marinaro. He was 57 at the time of his death. On Wednesday, March 14th, there was a call into the police to report a man lying still on an enclosed porch. When the police arrived, they found Rocco's body right inside the enclosed porch. He was face down and he was pronounced dead at the scene at 1.30 p.m. At the time, Rocco was living alone in a row home near the intersection of 20th and Allen Streets. Looking at pictures of his home along with the other homes on the street, I mean, they were very packed in. I mean, I think you could stand in the middle and touch both sides, kind of like where I live. Mm, okay. Yeah. So in my head, I'm thinking someone would have to hear anything. I can hear everything and anything happening between my two neighbors, at least. So I, in my head, I'm just thinking someone had to have heard something. And that is actually the case. They started to investigate these neighbors. Obviously, I think they do in any case anyway, just to see if anyone saw anything. And one neighbor said they had heard gunshots on Monday, March 12th, whereas other neighbors said they heard noise but couldn't tell if it was gunshots or firecrackers. And in my head, I'm thinking this is just like a random day. I know it's close to St. Patrick's Day, but it definitely wasn't St. Patrick's Day. It wasn't even the weekend. Like, unless there's a time to celebrate with firecrackers, I would always, like, suggest putting a call in because some people I don't think really understand the sound of a gun. Like, it's like a popping sound, I guess, from, like, movies and TV shows. There's, like, a misconception, I, I want to say, and I know me and Sarah talked about that before. They're, like, short little pops. Like, it could easily be firecrackers, but if there's not, like, a time to celebrate, then there's no caution in just calling the police to have them check it out. Sure. And I see <clears throat> this was in... um 2012. And it's just like in the past couple years, I think with COVID, like, I mean, we live in the same area. There were times that like people were shooting I off did. fireworks like every night, river. but um, oh, like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it was like all the time. And yeah. I'm, so I know it was, it's just been the past couple years. It's been like that, but like, I when I did live near you, I used to live above the pizza place on Main Street and 4th and 5th. Lies. And one night, it was just so bad. The cops were just going everywhere. And it wasn't even like a special night. Just tons of people all over like Roseward Borough were just shoot, uh, like shooting all the stuff off. Like, why? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm like a grouchy old lady, but I'm like, damn it. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it was just kids could have been messing around, you know, whatever. Um, so the city police looked into these neighbors saying, hey, we heard a noise to see if anyone might have reported anything. And it did turn out that Monday they got a call around that same intersection at 8.41 p.m. The report said that a call was made about firecrackers or gunshots, which are two very different things. 
So uh, police were sent out and they were dispatched to check around that intersection where people thought the noise was coming from. And there was really no evidence that there were gunshots at all. Now, Rocco was shot in the chest. And when Assistant Chief Joseph Hanna was asked initially if the shots reported on that Monday were the ones that could have taken Rocco's life, he declined to say, which I'm not really sure why. Maybe they were just looking into it. Hmm. Or maybe it was some sort of like something they wanted to keep close to the chest, maybe for investigation purposes. Well, another reason that I thought is, I mean, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Allentown is like Allentown City. Like that is a rough place and it has been for a while. So I didn't know if it was just like there's a lot of gun violence and they just wanted to make sure before confirming. Could be. Sure. And it made me think, like, as I was researching to find a case to do tonight, I think I had put it in our chat together. I was looking in Philly, and I think I even sent it. There were gun deaths in Philly every single day of the month of December of just 2021. And some had multiple deaths of up to eight. Wow. So, I mean, yeah. I couldn't find... I tried to look up, like, in 2012, like, the gun violence and i couldn't find exactly what i was looking for but i do know that it's not the best of area right so at the time of rocco's death he was a manager of environmental compliance at keystone cement in east allen township when his co-workers were questioned stephen j hayden jr who was the plant manager said they had not seen rocco for two days now i'm wondering why that didn't seem concerning to him and why that was not really question to have a no call no show for two days i think is kind of alarming and like we have to fill out all those like emergency contact forms before you know getting like starting like why wasn't his emergency contact called did they try to contact him do we know that like did a manager try to call his phone it didn't say that right. at all. Mm-hmm. But in the morning call, Stephen, this um, manager, admitted that these absences were unexplained. Okay. And like during that time, there was like no family that called the police for like a welfare checkup. And like if they did go to the house, they obviously would have seen him if a passerby had saw him on like the sidewalk. Yeah. I'm wondering. Like, I hate to say this because obviously he's the victim here, but like what kind of employee he was like, I mean, like I used to be in retail management and like there would be people that would be a no call, no show. And it was like, not surprising. It was just like, damn it. Why can't you just show up for work? You know, there's like certain employees that I feel like would be very alarming if they didn't call in and certain employees that would be like... I don't know. They're just dicking around. I feel like his position, I feel like obviously he had some status at that company. I know he had been working at it for a while. I don't think he would have been able to move up with that kind of. Fair enough. Yeah. And also one of my part-time jobs, I work with like a lot of people like with quarries, uh, cement companies and stuff like that. They are men that are there literally every single day. I Mm -hmm. swear the guy that I work for is never home. Oh, <laughs> um, they're just work. They're workaholics, and they're always like that. So I just can't see someone moving up in that type of line work with maybe not going, you know, showing up or anything. Right. But I, I'm, 
I have no gotcha. idea. It didn't say anything about his character at work, really, other than people said that he was like funny. He was a great guy. A lot of people said that he was extremely intelligent. Okay. Gotcha. His boss did confirm that he was at work on Monday, worked his regular shift, that nothing seemed out of the ordinary. And the last time he was seen was walking back to his home from a nearby restaurant that Monday night. So one of the neighbors that were questioned, they, and they even said it in the, that paper, the morning call that is like local to that area, that this violence is due to center city kids wandering and like, I guess getting bored. That's what they associated to. And a cousin of Rocco, Cheryl Uzadi, believes that the shooting was a random encounter. His cousin was quoted saying, I guess we are all just in shock that someone this wonderful would be shot in cold blood for no reason. Everybody who knew him loved him. To know him was to love him. I guess there's no good reason to shoot someone. But like when you find out it's just totally random because someone felt like shooting someone. I mean, we don't know that that's the case, but if it was like, like how unfortunate for him, like he didn't do anything. And I feel like he honestly didn't do it. He was literally entering his house and it wasn't stated that he was shot in the back. It doesn't say where the bull entered and exit, but he was facing downwards going into his home. Like, okay. I feel, I feel he was shot from behind. Right. So Rocco Marinara was born in Rahway, New Jersey, and was the only son of Anthony and Carmelo Marinaro. At the time of his death, he did not have any children. He was only survived by a number of cousins. A neighbor did report that after all the evidence was pulled, an agency came in and took all of his cats. In one article, his cousin Cheryl said that he had two cats. And honestly, that part just destroys me. Like knowing animals like won't have their owners. Yeah. That just makes me sad. Hmm. And obviously they don't understand it. But And he just sounds like a sweet, like middle-aged guy. Well, I guess a little older than middle-aged, but whatever. Like with his cats, just not bothering anyone. Yeah. And people said he loved photography. He loved puzzles. And he apparently he really loved his cats. Like everyone who talked about him talked about his cats. I was like, that's going to be me. (laughs) Me and all my cats. (laughs) There was a funeral held for Rocco at Frank J. Bonin Funeral Home, Inc. in Hazeltown, where he grew up. He was born in New Jersey, but then his family moved to Hazleton. And that's where his family lived. He was buried at Intermint in Calvary Cemetery at a family plot. As stated earlier, a cold case division was started at the Allentown Police Department in 2015, and at that time, detectives released a surveillance video. They are in the hopes that it will lead to more clues about Rocco's death. The video shows the intersection of 19th and Allen Streets on Monday, March 12, 2012. The cold case team does believe that the shots that happened on Monday were the ones that killed Rocco. In the video, you can see two supposed, I say supposed because like, It's really hard to tell. It's probably cold. They're wearing bulky clothes. Anyway, supposed men in dark clothing and baseball caps. They're not suspected as being the killers, but there's hope they saw something that that could potentially lead to a suspect. Now, this is a video that they recovered hours after Rocco was discovered, and it had never previously been released. It is still posted on the Morning Call website. I watched it, and honestly, it's a very short clip. I think it's only nine seconds. One man is just standing outside a building smoking a cigarette while the other one enters a building. And it really isn't the best quality video either. So I'm guessing they posted this video. So at least like maybe 
these men will come forward like, hey, that was me. Like, do you think if it was you, you would recognize yourself? Because you said it's really hard to see. I think so. Like, can you see the surroundings? You can clearly see the surroundings. These men were wearing really dark clothing. I can't even tell the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how dark. And they were like, one was wearing a cap and they're wearing puffy clothing. But the clothing does have like um, logos on it. You can make out the logos. Okay. Uh, um, and you can make out exactly where it is, like what building it is. So like if you're from the area and honestly, it's not there. They just are hoping that maybe they saw something suspicious or heard something, or maybe they saw something that they didn't think was suspicious at the time. But now knowing that there was a murder at that time could be suspicious. Right. And that was really their hope that it would kind of just bring in clues to try to find out who did this in general. Do you know if those men ever came forward? Nope, never did. Gotcha. Anyone with information on Rocco Marinero's death can contact Allentown Police by calling detectives at 610-437-7721. Now on to the second case, and this one is going to be about Michelle Farr. Now this is kind of similar to the actual, I think it's the first case I did when we started the podcast about... Lauren Marie Jackson. Mm-hmm. She was five years old and she was abducted near her town. And I kind of knew about the case and everyone local also knew about the case. But when looking into Michelle Farr, it's a very similar case. There's like really no information at all. And I asked mm-hmm. people like around here if they had heard about it. No one at all. Hmm. Which I thought was weird because it's a child. Right. And usually they get way more attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. So we'll get into it. It is a tough one, I think. Michelle was a six-year-old first grader at Jefferson Elementary School. She was running an errand on a routine route to the neighborhood store where she bought bread and lunch meat. This store at the time was called Highway Superette, which was located at 1032 South 5th Street, which was only roughly two blocks from her home. It was approximately 7.15 p.m. when she left, and it was March 5th, 1980. After that, she vanished. She was last seen leaving the store at 7.25 p.m. She turned to walk up Rye Street, which is apparently a shortcut for local kids. They would take it. I think it technically is an alley. Like, it's not like just a dirt road. It is an alley, but it's poorly lit. Mm. I don't like that. Yep. Nope. She really only made it approximately 100 yards before the remnants of her grocery store purchase were found. Oh. Yeah. Her mother, Betty Herzog, noticed Michelle's absence and went looking for her. Betty was the one who discovered the torn bag of groceries and called the police at 8.51 p.m. I decided to look up this grocery store, and it sits along PA 145, a state road, which would be traveled way more than a local road. And this Rye Street is perpendicular. It's just right off of it. And this is in Allentown as well, right? Oh, yeah. This one's okay. in Allentown, too. Okay. Yep. I tried to look at pictures of this business. It's no longer It's no longer open. It closed. Um, but basically, this alleyway go, is, like, directly, like, if you're looking at it from, what is it, PA 145, the Rye Street goes literally up the side of it and around. It's a hill. Okay. And at the time, now it's uh, more populated, but at the time there was like a wooded section. Now there's still a wooded section across the street, but it was more wooded back then on on that side. It was like the grocery store and then a little bit of wooded area. So somebody could have been like hiding back there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And that kind of what her mother thinks, there's like a big tree 
like, I guess, directly perpendicular where like the bag was. She thinks someone was maybe hiding, waiting for her to pass, maybe saw her walk into the store alone, saw the way she came and possibly was waiting for her. I hate this. I hate it. Or maybe... Some people say that maybe they knew it was a local person that knew her routine or had been watching her Mm -hmm. and could easily have been planning it. So, right. So the reason that she ventured out this late was because her brother Forrest was initially asked to go, but he refused. So she kind of went in his place. But I did see another article say that her stepfather, Richard Herzog, had sent her, but he'd sent her because Forrest refused. So either way, her brother didn't want to go. She was like the next person and they needed the food. This was March. So it was probably still relatively light at this time, right? Oh, no, it would definitely be dark. Really? Absolutely. By 725. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I would think so. I I don't think it gets that late until like June, right? That late. Like Mm. between seven and eight. I mean, even if it wasn't like totally dark, it would have been at least like getting pretty dark by them in March. So I guess the lighting would be bad either way. Well, I did. I did see mention in one article that her uncle said that um, Michelle was afraid of the dark and that he doesn't understand why she went. Okay, so you would assume it would be dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And in all the articles, it constantly mentioned mentioned how poorly lit rye street was okay and why would they mention that if it was you know right yeah following day her body was discovered floating at lake naka mixon and it was kind of near she was floating near a bridge so they kind of assumed that maybe she was dumped this was located about 20 miles from where michelle was abducted buck's deputy coroner john moyer said at the time of her discovery she was fully clothed though her outer coat was found floating near her body kind of almost washed up on the bank and she was found by two fishermen at approximately 11:45 a.m thursday march 6 1980 and i don't know if they were like part of the search group or if they were just like literally fishing yeah it, it never clarified the only thing that it said about them was one was from bethlehem and one was from allentown those two men now in the beginning of the investigation the cause of death was being withheld pending the results of an autopsy the autopsy was performed in the night the body was found by Grand View Hospital in Sellersville by Dr. Isidore. Oh gosh, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but I'm going to try. Mihalakis? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry if I butcher it. They were a forensic pathologist at Sacred Heart Hospital, and Bucks County Coroner Dr. Thomas J. Roscoe said that Michelle was not a drowning victim, which I'm guessing means like there was no lungs. No lungs. She had no water in her lungs. <laughs> gotcha. Which in my mind, it most likely means that she was killed at another location than dumped. Dr. Roscoe termed the death a homicide and listed the cause as anoxia, which is lack of oxygen. He said that the death was either suffocation or strangulation or like a combined type of like form, something like that. They couldn't definitively say, didn't see like, I guess, marks in her tissue to definitely say it was strangulation. Okay. I guess like the only good part I think in my head is that there was no report of sexual harassment. That was like one saving grace. I think in my head that she wasn't sexually assaulted. So like, obviously that's a a good thing, but I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around like, why would you abduct a child just to kill her? 
Like there's no good reason to abduct a child. Obviously I'm just trying to like wrap my brain around. Like I'm thinking you abducted a child to sexually assault them and then had to cover your tracks. You killed them. Like you literally just wanted to kill a child. I had, I don't know if it was a podcast or a TV show. I like true crime as I'm sure everyone else who <laughs> listens to us does. Like at least I'd hope. And I honestly can't remember the case. I was trying to look it up before we got on so I could like at least give you something to look at. But I remember, I think it was a show. I don't even know where this guy had these thoughts of abducting a kid and sexually assaulting them. Thought about it constantly, 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 constantly. And I guess it got worse as he aged up because then it became like more inappropriate to be with younger girls, Mm -hmm. obviously. So then he just thought about it. He would just date girls that were underage, but then he kind of wanted that scenario where he took someone that didn't want to be taken. You know, that's what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I guess that power. So he found a girl and he trailed her and watched her and watched her and watched her and he abducted her. But then he was like, oh, oh, like I did this. Like, I can't like she's going to have to die. Like if I do this. And he was just so sad at the fact that she had to die that he didn't even want to touch her and he killed her. And he just constantly, I remember in listening to it, he was just so regretful that he did not rape her. What? Mm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's all sorts of like different ways you can be evil. Yeah. I guess. Wow. Like maybe, I don't know. And I've heard that before. Like people just like, fantasize about it but then when it actually happens they panic like oh my god i took that step like what am i going to do now like i feel like raping children is one thing but then once they do it what are they going to do right especially if the kid is older and can like recall them recall details it's like harder like it's almost guaranteed that they'll most likely be killed right Mm. especially if someone's abducted i feel it's more likely if someone's abducted than if someone breaks into your house and rapes you know what i mean yeah sure i don't know i just think it's crappy but i mean who knows this was so long ago maybe they just didn't check the right things maybe she was sexually assaulted i mean you're yeah you're right and that's like another thing i just hope that she wasn't yeah apparently there were four witnesses who who claimed to see a parked car along the lake between 9 15 and 9 45 p.m the night of the abduction this person was parked along the shoulder of route 563 which i think goes along that lake so they had a composite sketch which was obtained through hypnotic interviews these witnesses depicted a 30 year old white male with dark rimmed glasses now i didn't know that that was like allowed or accepted i don't think it is so much anymore because i think you know sometimes you can make stuff up in your brain so i think i don't think it's as accepted anymore like the thought was that they were trying to get like deeply buried memories or yeah you know whatever but then it was figured out that sometimes you could just make stuff up so if they showed them something especially like beforehand you know it could be yeah and the thing is all four of them had said before going under hypnosis that it was dark obviously and he had his lights on I mean, are you telling me you can see someone in the windshield that you're going across or that you're going to try to, like, make out their... Unless, like, they're obviously carrying a child or dumping it over a bridge. Are you really going to, like, stop to notice or strain to see somebody? No. (laughs) Yeah. And the fact that all four of their 
uh, descriptions lined up like to a T is kind of questionable. <laughs> right. Like were they shown a picture or something fed information? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Though they were all able to give a description of the car and they described it. And I know I'm going to say the name wrong. So just yell at me. It I think was it's a chamois. Late model. What was that? Shammy, I think. Shammy? But I could be wrong. (laughs) I've never heard of that color before at all. And I felt like an idiot. So I had to look it up. And also, I'm like, I'm not totally colorblind, but I cannot tell the difference between shades of colors at all. Yeah. Like, I can see color, but my colors, what I think is one color, is not the right color. Huh. Um, So to me, it looks like, like a beige off color, off yellow color. So I could Hmm. be wrong. Who knows? But it was a Mercury Zephyr. Yep. This is before our time. So, I mean. (laughs) Well, I feel like, didn't you talk about wanting your last case that just aired this past Friday? Was, didn't she have the same car? No, she had a Plymouth. Damn. (laughs) I am not a car person, obviously. (laughs) Me either. Me either. (laughs) But it's a big bulky car. It almost looks like a Buick, kind of. That's what I thought. Okay. um, but all of them did say that, and I believe that was before the hypnosis. So I can believe that, like, recalling that, obviously. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Person. Yeah. And honestly, they got the information about the car. I never saw, like, they tried to search it or anything. Nothing like that. That was, like, the first and last time that it was mentioned. Now, three weeks after Michelle's disappearance and her, well, not her disappearance, when they found the body, her windbreaker was found on South Sixth Street, and I kind of find it a little bit bizarre. And we'll kind of get into it. I was looking at old articles on newspaper.com, and one of the articles had a picture of the police officers holding this windbreaker with no gloves. <laughs> like all this evidence, everything was getting touched and walked about, and nothing was secure. Granted, it is the 80s. But I just found it interesting that, like, there was no gloves ever. Right. I don't know. I feel like they should have known better by then. (laughs) You would think, but I won't hold my breath. It was found on South 6th Street, and it was only two and a half blocks away from her home. And where it was found, it was kind of like a heavily trafficked walking area, I would say. And And a local woman found it, and she said that she walked that path every day. And that she hadn't seen it the day before. So really, it looks like someone dropped it. Right. So this local woman ended up taking it home, washing it, and giving it to one of her children to wear. So, But she, when she found it, she didn't know what it was, right? No, 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 no. She okay. had no idea what it was. Okay. So the only reason they know that it is Michelle's is apparently like a seam ripped and she was fixing it and she had noted on one of the tags that it said michelle Farr, and obviously she knew who that was yes so she called the police and immediately turned it over and the police got it on april 18th but by this time it had already been washed yeah and that's so long too wow yeah can you imagine being one of those kids that maybe has been like wearing that jacket potentially yeah like, mm, mm. Yeah. Well, we do know that Allentown is kind of like a poor area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guarantee, I mean, I think it was like a nicer windbreaker. So to her, she was like, I scored, you know, kind of. Sure. Yeah. It was. I don't definitely think it was like in a malicious way. And obviously, oh, no. obviously she felt bad and wanted help because she turned it over. So, yeah, she did the right thing. 
Absolutely. Betty confirmed that this was Michelle's jacket, and police believe that the killer was trying to get rid of evidence after the body was discovered. But in my mind, if that's true, why put it near where she was abducted and lived? Like, that makes no sense. Right. There are so many other things I feel like you could have done with it. Yeah. Somewhere else where, I mean, like I said, I don't think this case got a lot of public attention, not even compared to what Lauren Jackson's did. And hers was only a couple of years later. I think only like six or eight years later. Yeah. There, and police had two theories that this was a person that was just passing by and noticed her or someone local. If it was someone passing by, like you could have taken it anywhere. And no one would have questioned that at all. Right. Yeah, you're right. And even if it was local, just why? Yeah. Throw it out. Yeah. If, if it. it's someone local, then you're stupid. But like, mm-hmm. either way, it's bizarre. Well, then police put out like in a newspaper article, help. Have you seen someone's car with this jacket in it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yep. mm-hmm. yeah so that happened interesting um, mm-hmm. okay so yeah since the night of her disappearance there's been thousands of hours that have gone into the investigation like i said investigators even resorted to hypnosis which apparently they hadn't tried before a year after the discovery investigator said that there was new evidence and substantial leads which pointed to a definite suspect though i disagree because no one was ever really listed as a suspect and all these um <clears throat> i guess clues they were never reported again it's probably because they want to keep it close so like when they find somebody they know for sure if it's them you know mm-hmm. sure but one of the people that they had in their eyesight was richard herzog and I don't know if you remember, but he was the stepfather and he was questioned hard and he was quoted in the morning call. He kind of did an interview and he said that they interrogated him for 2.5 hours and quote unquote required him to take a lie detector test, which I don't think they can. I don't think police can do it even back then. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a willing thing because it's not admissible in court. Some people get confused, though, because investigators yeah. are aren't there really to like let you know what your rights are i mean they have to and so like but some people are still confused about what their rights are um yeah. and i mean of course they're going to look at people that are closest to her especially men i would assume yeah. so i'm Ooh, not surprised well, at all oh well i'll tell you why they're looking at him okay <laughs> um a little bit further down in this same morning call interview apparently he was quoted as saying i passed with flying colors he said that an FBI agent told him he was the main suspect until he passed the polygraph. The police, when asked, they would not address um, how his polygraph went and if he passed it. Mm, okay. And another thing I found suspicious is when police asked for an address, Richard gave them two. The one was the second floor apartment that Michelle's family lived in. And the other was on another street in Allentown, another Allentown address. And there's also some confusion because Richard was interviewed by multiple reporters, as I said. And on a couple of occasions, at least two that were reported, he could not like keep his cool or composure. He would get very angry, like throw his hands up, yell for being accused of possibly being involved. Hmm. So... And really, the police refused to discuss 
how his interrogation went at all. So why he was considered to be involved was according to Lehigh County court records, Richard was ordered out of the family home after he was accused of breaking the arm of Jennifer in April 1980. And Jennifer was a two-year-old sister of Michelle. Oh my God. Yeah. So Foster and Michelle had a different father and then Betty married Richard and they had a daughter together. So I guess it would have been Michelle's half-sister. Okay. According to Lehigh County court records, Richard was ordered out of the family home after he was accused of breaking the arm of Jennifer in January 1980. The two-year-old sister of Michelle. Now, Michelle and Forrest had a different father. When Betty married Richard, they had a child together, and this was Jennifer Sile. Michelle was her half-sister. Okay. In court, Betty said that Richard broke Jennifer's arm in two places on January 29th, 1980. Oh, yeah, which is terrible. Like a two-year-old. Yeah, a baby. It was also noted in court that Michelle and Forrest were witnesses to this incident. Apparently, he only needed to agree to go to counseling, and his word was that he would not abuse his own daughter, which is like, what? Oh, the eighties. Although it's stuff like this probably still happens today because people are garbage. Oh, I guarantee. But through all of this, he maintained that he had nothing to do with Michelle's disappearance. But that's got to take a lot of like uh, violent anger to break your kid's arm. And it didn't even say in what context like he did it. Like, obviously, it wasn't an accident because she went to the court with it. Yeah. I mean, that he sounds like a very, very angry person. Yeah. And so I tried to do some digging. I tried. This case was very hard to um, research this one particular because it was so long ago. Most of the articles I could only find on newspapers.com. There was like nothing that I could find online really at all other than on newspapers.com. I tried to find some more information about Richard. I did find an obituary and I want to say that it's him because it does say he was survived by a daughter named Jennifer. Okay. But then it has like in parentheses Christian Mendez, which I don't really get. Mm. I, I, I don't know if like they changed identity. I don't know. I don't get it. I've never seen that. And none of the other people are like that, but this Richard Herzog that I was able to find an obituary of. He was 65 of Allentown. Okay. And the age kind of fits. Because if you think the 80s, that's 40 years, like 42 years from now. Wait, he died in 17. So from the 80s, that was almost 40 years. It was 37. Oh, God, math. 37. It was 37. And he was probably like in his thirties around when this happened. So the the his age kind of makes sense. And the fact that it's listed that he has a daughter, but it does if this is him, he was in the military. Okay. Um he was an army veteran of the Vietnam War. So I mean, I know sometimes with vets Yeah. It's hard with like the PTSD and like controlling your violence. So if it is him possibly, mm-hmm. I don't know. But that's like really all I could find mm-hmm. about him. I couldn't find really anything else. 
Well, he sounds like garbage, regardless. <laughs> yeah, if that was him or not. That's basically all I could find on her. And there really hasn't been any clues or anything. I tried to like look up to see if there was a reward. Can't find it, but her hers is another case on that list of 20. Um, that was on Allentown's cold cases. And there's plenty of more. So if you're interested, that cold case list is up on their website. Take a look. Each of them have their own link to show, I guess, pictures and a description, you know. And again, if you have any information on Michelle Farr's death, you can contact the same place, the Allentown Police, by calling detectives at 610-437-7721. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.